Welcome to Afterlives of Ancient Egypt, in which we discuss ancient history and relevant current events. I'm Kara Cooney, and I love to take deep dives into history that are not always possible in academic formats. So, let's get started. Hello, everyone. Hello. We're, we're on Zoom today because we're all so busy with our schedules. So busy. And we're all quarter. It's spring quarter now. Oh, it's spring quarter. <laughs> Shit. Ah, I don't even know what where I am in time and space. But yeah, I'm I'm happy to be alive on this earth of of constant work. But it's okay. Here we it's are. Good stuff. Things could be worse. Yes, they really could. Well, I want to just dive right in because right before we started recording, we were talking about the new controversy about the Netflix Cleopatra. Um, I Which think it's like a doc, like mocu- documentary. I think it's half documentary, half live action scenes. I think it's one of those new Netflix things. Like I, I saw this rather ridiculous one about uh, the end of the Romanov family dynasty mm-hmm. and and how they were all um, rounded up and killed in the end, but what, what their family life was like. And they do like half talking heads and mm-hmm. then half actual live action love like you're watching the crown or something like that. So I suspect this is what they have done because it was rather popular. And, um, and I think they asked me to be on this and I said, no, Mm. I can't remember, but, um, it's, it's fine. Um, but let's Jordan, what's the controversy and then we'll, we'll discuss and give our safe opinions as any good controversy. It's about skin color. So, uh, yeah. So people are upset that, She's depicted in a very African, the actress who is playing Cleopatra is of an African ethnicity. Um, and this goes back to the whole, you know, is how should Cleopatra look? And, you know, is it the Elizabeth Taylor, very white European Cleopatra? No one's happy with that. No one's happy with a very African Cleopatra. It's like, and, you know, Zahi Hawass has come out against it as well, saying that, Egypt was not black and therefore, you know, a black person should not be playing Cleopatra. Um, and so Zahi people... just released a statement. Zahi just released a statement saying that Africans didn't build the pyramids mm-hmm. either. So yep. that's out there. And the same article written by Zahi says that Cleopatra was probably blonde. So that's out there. And I just, I, I mean, well, what's your opinion? And then I'll give my opinion. I understand why there's a debate, but I think it's so stupid <laughs> because I think one is if, if we, if they had cast some of like a Mediterranean persuasion, I think people would be less upset about it, which I think is interesting and says a lot that if they picked like a tan Mediterranean person, I think most people would be like, yeah, okay. Um, but why there's this obsession especially with when we depict people from the ancient world about like getting their depiction like accurate and that that somehow means something or that should be the goal of these media producers is going for accuracy instead of like just picking an actress they think embodies the ideal of Cleopatra. Like what if they picked an Asian or South Asian actress to play this role, right? Like why does it have to fit in these boxes of how we construct their racial identity? And 
And so I don't know. I just think it's such a stupid argument. And I think part of it is because everyone always asks us, what race were the ancient Egyptians? And were the ancient Egyptians black? And I get why people are interested in this because it's part of our our culture and things. And but I think it's of all of all the things to be concerned with, to me, it's not that big of a deal what actress they cast and I'm more like how many Cleopatra movies do we need there's so many other interesting stories oh, in the so ancient agree. world that well, like even in the Ptolemaic family pick any other story in yeah. the Ptolemaic family you've got better stories so, so you know, I don't this, know this idea of anybody playing her is something that's been well established in American media recently with the musical Hamilton mm-hmm. where you have George Washington and Alexander Hamilton and many others played by actors of color. And that caused a big stir, but it's like, why do only the white guys get to play the white guys in a dominant white supremacist culture? It's not fair. And then why do white people get to play people of color? (laughs) Exactly. So get let's white people have played people of color as we all know, and Mm -hmm. there's such a thing as blackface and and Mm -hmm. Asian face and all of these things. But so you know, we, we have a, or some of us have this idea that authenticity is a joke and we can't find an authenticity without our trusty time machines to go back and know exactly what skin color she was. And, and then you, I see, so first I see a lot of outright racism Mm -hmm. from both European facing white people, Americans, Europeans of different persuasions, um, North Africans saying horrible racist things of she wasn't black this is disgusting how dare you depict her this way which is which is problematic on its face because what is the problem with being black that is so offensive to you that you have to wrap yourself up in a pretzel of victimhood and mm-hmm. say that this is inauthentic and go to town with with this this screed of how dare you because if you cast cleopatra as an irish woman which we have seen done countless times lily white like like you know like me or something yeah like like you or me with freckles and everything like amber blonde blue eyed (laughs) yes no one would say a goddamn thing and and there would be no outrage because being white in a white supremacist culture is good, quote mm-hmm. unquote, whereas being black is bad. So that outrage and that racism from white people and from Egyptian people, I have found very distasteful and very upsetting. And if you look on social media, you'll find some very racist visual things, racist things said that are just really upsetting. And I understand that our understanding of what black is, is a very American thing. And I understand that Egyptians have not radically reclaimed the word black, that Mm -hmm. it has some negative connotations and that's fine. And we don't need to throw around the word black. So there's that. Now, a lot of people will say Cleopatra was Macedonian Greek. This is a ridiculous thing to say. How would you even discuss that, that Cleopatra is not this lily white that we must have her be. And I would remind everyone that Cleopatra VII, because she was a long line of Cleopatras after a long line of Arsinoes and a long line of Ptolemies, was the only in her dynastic family to be able to speak and read Egyptian. And these things have been proven by archaeologists and anthropologists to pass through female lines. Mm -hmm. That if a mother is traveling with a group or is brought into a different Mm -hmm. ethnic group or a different identity group that she often brings her language 
with her and teaches it to her children. So chances are that Cleopatra had an Egyptian mother. She may have been half Egyptian, half Greek, this mother. She may have been all Egyptian, gasp, all Egyptian. And if she was all Egyptian, then we're talking about a quote unquote mixed race, whether that's appropriate to say or not anymore, I'm not sure. Hapa, as people in Hawaii might say. We're talking about somebody of mixed descendancy mm-hmm. being Cleopatra the Seventh, quite possibly. And I'm 90% there because she wrote and spoke Egyptian. Not easy things to learn. And something you you need to be brought up to do. It's not something your tutor can just bring to you. It's something that you learn probably out of an identity that is not disclosed to us because Cleopatra V was not her mother, which was a problem. Mm -hmm. And bastardcy was a big deal among these Macedonians, right? So we have a woman who's probably of mixed ancestry. And the choice was made to depict a woman of mixed ancestry in the Netflix documentary. She may be of a more West African look. And yes, we with our very human eyes can tell the difference between an East African and a West African much of the time. It doesn't always work. But maybe she looks a little more West African in her phenotype. Her skin color is not ultra black. But so this is my point too. Like you never know genetics are no. never directly linked to a phenotype, right? So you never know how yeah. genes are mixed, how they were going to show. You can have twins and one can be darker and one can be lighter and they can be, you know, fraternal twins. And so just saying like, oh, she's this and oh, she's that. Like, we don't even know then what the results would be. Um, so I guess- We don't. And if her you mother know, was Upper Egyptian, if her mm-hmm. mother was Upper Egyptian and she's then- has mixed Upper Egyptian Macedonian ancestry, then her skin color could be much darker than people would like. Then people in the dominant Egyptian, American, European culture would like. Mm -hmm. And the fact that people are so butthurt about this says so much more about us than it does about the ancient culture that we're talking about. Because no one fucking wrote down what her skin color was in any sort of detail because it didn't fucking matter and it's just it's ridiculous it's like driving me crazy that's what i feel very much yeah oh my god she's macedonian like yes she is but we don't know who her mother was she could have had darker skin what but i like even beyond that point even if she was a hundred percent macedonian i still don't like as you said about like hamilton like i don't really care that an actor of any phenotype plays an an actor i don't know um like why are we so hung up like no one had an issue with like christian bale being moses he's like i don't know like british isles man like you know how is that okay or like ben kingsley being an egyptian and i don't know i just jewish man or yeah. Gal Gadot being Cleopatra, though people do seem to have a problem with that, but more because she's Israeli, not because of yeah. any sort of ethnic background. Um, there's there's so much that one could say, and it's just super frustrating. But I will say that the overt racism is easy and to see amongst Egyptologists too. We've seen some some tweets, some Facebook posts that have been surprising for some, not so surprising for others, and it's just. Um, you know, disheartening that even us, we're still, uh, there's still a lot of um, either overt racism or, you know, more clouded, hidden racism still going on as well. 
I mean, what are we taught that every day we are perpetuating systemic racism? Mm -hmm. Every day we have to question our agendas. Every day we have to ask, how am I privileged in this situation and what can I do to equalize things? Yeah. And as little black kids or little black boys are still getting getting shot, going to knock on a door. It's just like, you know. Yeah. And then somebody will say, oh, but a little white girl was killed. And I'll say, oh, so your gun culture, th- this is okay then? Because yeah, it's, it's, it's not okay way. for either of them. No, it's not. It happens it's more not. to a certain group though, but yeah. So I anyway, I found this very disturbing and very illuminating. And it, um, it brings up all kinds of questions for me yeah. about why any of this even matters and who wants to claim Egypt because so many people want to claim Egypt. And I think we should all just look to other stories that one one can tell too. Yeah. And maybe this will make more people watch it and inspire an interest in ancient history at the very least. You know, sometimes when things are scandalous like this, more people will check it out. So I, I haven't, I haven't watched it. So I don't know, maybe we can watch it and we can respond and get our uh, Patreon members to see if they have thoughts on it or something like this as well um love it that would be a cool like next live event or something we could talk Mm -hmm. about race in ancient egypt and depictions thereof let's put our finger on the pulse of the ancient modern connections in this world yeah but so we'll see but yeah it's frustrating to say the least it's out there okay so let's get into our patreon question um a couple today but some are some are um a bit longer so we'll we'll piece through those but we'll start with marissa's um and she posted more of a thought but i think to get our response to uh and she said the ahet horizon symbol with the sun coming up between the hills reminds me of a woman's legs with a baby's head emerging double meaning perhaps what are your thoughts Oh, absolutely. 100, 100, 100, as we put in our texts, um, because there's also a hieroglyph, as as we all know, mm-hmm. that shows the baby's head emerging from the mother. She's seated when the head is coming out, usually. She's seated like in or like squatting. Position. Yeah, like yeah, in the like sumo kneeling. squat. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that works. And of course, the the son being born in the East is being born. And mm-hmm. the the pink in the sky is said to be the afterbirth blood of the sun. Mm-hmm. So it, it makes perfect sense that that would be a, a woman's thighs and the sun coming forth. And it's newt. It, yeah, it's newt. And then there's other discussions where you see the heavenly cow mm-hmm. and you see the sun God coming forth from between the legs of the heavenly cow being born, or you see newt stretched out on the horizon and the sun God is being born. All of these things are very viscerally, very bodily represented. So I, I say that. In yes. that one um Jerome Medina tomb, right? Doesn't the hills have breasts? Yes, they I'm, do. So very still very like mothering, mother, like this connection to like motherhood and birthing and yeah. Yeah. Um Amber could look at the monochrome tombs. I'm pretty yeah. sure that's a monochrome tomb because such a- innovative symbolism and iconography is always in the monochrome tombs of Daryl Medina, so-called monochrome. They're yellow, red, and black. Um, they're actually three colors, not monochrome, but it would be cool to see which tomb that comes from. Mm-hmm. And we could, we could, um, put that in our sub stack or something like that. That could be, it's, it's pretty damn cool. Mm-hmm. So coming from the breasts, but you know, you're just, because by that point he's been born, you can't see the vulva you that's below the horizon. Mm-hmm. What you can see then maybe is the breasts and 
and then he's feeding off of those breasts. I I love that. Yeah, or just yeah, the hills, her her many curves. Yeah. But yeah. So always always look for the sexual connotations. They're there. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, I was talking to somebody, what was it? They're like, oh no, there's no sexual connotation there. And I, oh, it was about the harem and it was about the henret. And they were like, no, no, this is just a troop of singers because there are, there are like noble wives in this. And it's just a troop of singers and it has nothing to do with sex. And I'm like, when people talk about sex, do they ever say, I'm going to go have sex with someone tonight? I mean, yes, rarely with a very close friend, but usually use a euphemism. Mm -hmm. You say, we're going to Netflix and chill. You say, we're going to go, you know, um, meet up, hook up, you know, these things that we say, you don't talk about sex directly. And these, these euphemisms are, and I, I would say the henret is also very sexual, but may also involve other people and maybe a musician's troupe. And these things are not mutually exclusive. I mean, um, a lot of times they're in, dedicated to Hathor too. So it's yes. this. Sex invades every aspect of modern human life. So I imagine it would invade every aspect of ancient Egyptian life as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. Yeah. The henrets, if you're like thinking about music as like calling forth the gods and these festivals of drunkenness and I mean, there's argument that there was free sex happening at these festivals. And so, yeah, I agree. Free sex. I like that. Free sex. I didn't want to say orgy. (laughs) (laughs) It has a certain connotation. It has a connotation. I was like, more positive, not phrased. Um, Okay. Far Pointer asks, and I think we might have touched on this last time. I couldn't remember if we we talked about it, but how much do we know about how individuals in ancient Egypt experienced religion? How did the average person interact with priests, home temples, pick a god or group of gods over another? Or is this even a question that makes sense? I think we talked about it last time. It it sounds familiar to me, but we can discuss it again. I wasn't sure. I mean, just the word religion is is a massive word. The, the word religion is a massive word, and one would have to then ask does far pointer mean state religion? Mm-hmm. And that's a very good question. How much did the normal human have access to state religion? And it depends on when you ask. And I think, I think I did say this last time. Oh my yeah. God, this chair. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, work um, it out. It, I'm sorry. And it I depends said, on <laughs> it's horrible. Um and it depends on when you ask, because I think there's much less access to that state religion in the early dynastic in the old kingdom. And less access in the middle kingdom, more access in the new kingdom, even more access as you go into the third intermediate period and the Greco-Roman time periods when you can actually buy access or get access around the back, but you have, you have a different kind of access. And um, in time periods when populism is Mm -hmm. prevalent among kingship, like Ramses II's time, you have arguably more access, but, um, but so then like, what was the quote unquote average person be doing religion wise? Yeah. I mean, like, are they practicing anything? It depends on what the, how open the temple is to selling things, to creating an income on its own in the new kingdom from the 18th dynasty, the temple doesn't need to create an income. It has the state support so it can remain exclusive. By the 20th dynasty, the state is losing that income. And so it needs the state or the normal person to come in and buy an indulgence, so to Mm -hmm. speak, to buy a figurine, a mummy, a something. And that increases in the late period. 
So it, it depends on how much the temple needs the normal person. And it also depends on how much there is a demand and a and a spending ability by the normal person. And mm-hmm. that means how much of a middle class is there? It's a hugely social question. That's how much is a temple going to open up and need? How much is a normal human being going to be able to spend? If you're part of a peasant class, you can't spend anything. You don't have any disposable income. You're really working hand to mouth and everything you grow, you eat. Do you have any disposable income to buy a mummy or some sort of mm-hmm. offering? Not, it would be very difficult. So you have to be a part of that that middle class, which demands an industrialism that you really don't get until 26th dynasty at the earliest, at the earliest. But mm-hmm. yeah, but that, but that group does grow. You see it in the funerary arts. More people can afford more coffins and more systematic funerary culture exists. Everybody dies. So, you know, the funerary culture is the way that you would hit that question, I think. But are we also presuming like people would have local shrines or maybe shrines in their houses or, um, you know, a smaller, more local cult? Or I guess my always my always question in these matters is like how much I think we're very clouded by modern religion and that the person has to like practice the religion and there is some aspect Mm -hmm. of you doing something to be a good adherent um versus just it's your understanding of the way the world works and therefore you don't have to like go to church or offer anything to the gods or anything it just is happening around you and you believe in its functioning and you attribute it to these certain gods um, but that your role, because it's less of a personal relationship, that you don't really have much of a role. You know, the Pharaoh is taking care of all these things and doing his duties. And therefore, like I, as just a peasant in Middle Egypt, I don't need to be like offering anything. Like maybe if my child is sick, you would go and make an offering or something and ask for something from them. But there isn't a a requirement from you on like a daily or weekly basis. And like, we're thinking like going to church or, you know. It's it's a hard thing for us to wrap our heads around the idea that there isn't an imp- coerced imposition. Mm-hmm. You have to go to church. <laughs> yeah. You have to have faith. You have to do these things that instead going to the temple or showing yourself in the company of a sacred icon or some sort of fetish was like being at the at like the Met Fashion Gala. It mm-hmm. was like being in a social circle that gave you status that you would not have otherwise, that people are climbing all over each other to get into quote unquote church or temple mm-hmm. in this case, because it gave them access to a society that they wanted to be around for influence, connections, networking, etc. It wasn't a coerce, like you better do this or you're an evil person, you're bad, you're gonna go to hell. You didn't have those, those guilt- uh, ridden mm-hmm. impositions. Not that religion wasn't used as a tool of power. I've written a whole book about that mm-hmm. called The Good Kings, and you can check that out. But because it was, but it's generally written as a tool of power by elites for elites. Mm-hmm. The normal ancient Egyptian peasant of the 18th dynasty is is going to have an ancestor shrine, probably made of simple materials in their home. They will have the dead all around them in a sense, because every baby that doesn't Mm -hmm. make it beyond the age of 
six or seven, we don't really know, is buried in a pot mm-hmm. underneath the floor of their home in a domestic space. Did, did people talk to the dead children in their homes? I have to believe they did. Yeah. I would have. Um, and and then once the dead die and you, you the older dead, and you put them into a necropolis farther away, you can create a likeness of them, a simple likeness made out of clay or something very easily formed and put it in your ancestor shrine. We have some of these from Dira Medina, which is more of a lower elite kind of domestic space, mm-hmm. but it gives you an idea of what the normal peasant family may have had in their homes and how they would have connected to divinity. And I like this idea that, you know, when you're praying or you're talking to something supernatural, just the, just us, like you and me, Jordan, we're talking mm-hmm. to something supernatural. Who do you think is going to listen to your entreaty? God, God, the God, or like your grandmother, mm-hmm. whom you knew really well, who's passed to the other side, whom you have conversations with, and you're well, like, yeah. oh, what about this or that? You you talk to the grandmother first in some ways, and she's then an intercessor to talk to divinity, however you understand that. Yeah, so Kara's referencing these concepts of when people die, they become an ach, which is a aspect of your personhood, and certain people, well-known important people locally would become an ak iker, so an effective or ak, and they would be able to intercede on your behalf in the afterlife. As you said, in a more local, they know you maybe personally, and so you think they will actually come help me versus some god who is maybe doing more important things in the moment at the moment. Yeah. Um, I talk to ancestors all the time. It's mm-hmm. funny. Um, and I think a lot of us do. And don't even think about it as some sort of cult practice, mm-hmm. but it is a cult practice. It's a prayer. It's a, a connection to some other place, other time, other other dimension, whatever you want to understand it. And then I think the other thing that is easy for us to forget, and I just came from Japan, so it's easy to see there, where you have cult activity to a river, to mm-hmm. a tree, mm-hmm. to a building. You can have a spirit of a building. Mm-hmm. And all of these things have power and you want to show your, your humility in response to that power. And even a meal has a divinity so that when everyone says, they're saying, we thank you for the sacrifice, you mm-hmm. animals and plants that we have killed to be eaten by us. And it's a, it's an exchange, a give and take, but a show of, of reverence for everything you have around you. And Ancient peoples would have absolutely engaged in that way. And ancient peoples filled with anxiety about what their crops would have been like and whether the wheat would grow. Oh, yeah. Trust me, they're praying like with everything they've got mm-hmm. because they need to reach out to the, that supernatural. We, we do these things all the time. You go to a baseball game, you reach out to the supernatural and rub your lucky. Mm-hmm. I don't care mm-hmm. what it is. And people do these things. You may not think of it as cult activity, but that is indeed what it is. Yeah. And I think something you said made me think too just of rituals and festivals being such a major aspect you know we we know of like the bigger rituals that would have taken place in the temples but and you know local little local rituals would have also and festivals probably would have been a major calendrical like way of keeping time and looking forward to things and places where you maybe would meet your future spouse and all these other social networking events as well but places of you know 
happiness and weird little things we don't know about. Like when you start, when maybe you bring your grain to the grinding house and you grind it and you take the first grinding Mm -hmm. and you throw it to, you say something. Yeah. Yeah. And you say, this is for the gods or this Mm -hmm. is for this. Osiris. This is an offering for something. And then the rest and that, that humility gives you then a better, uh, even what like normal. And when I'm saying normal, I mean like, you know, the peasant farmers, what their funerary traditions would have been. We have no idea, right? We know yeah. like fairy elites and the king. Yeah. But we don't know what would have went into just a normal person dying. And only Daryl Medina can tell us such yeah. things that a person was sick. We see the people staying home from work to care for the sick. Mm-hmm. We see those same people dying. And then people get off work to clean and wrap the sick. They use the word oot or wet mm-hmm. for wrapping. And then there's some sort of funeral and and that funeral would have involved some objects that were maybe put into the tomb. Um, some people Easting. would have a coffin, some would not. Um, some would have had little combs or little jewelry, um, textiles, mm-hmm. all kinds of things. But those were valuable possessions yeah. to, to include. Yeah, so there's, it's very interesting. And I think, you know, more and more people are working on you know, funerary rituals and just the experience of lower status people. So hopefully you could start to elucidate this more, but yeah, it's, it's very, very interesting. And I leave it to the religious specialists. (laughs) But religion quote unquote is everywhere, Mm -hmm. everywhere. And your very survival depends on not believing in it, It just hacking how it Mm -hmm. works. What will this God give to me if I give it this thing? How can I make sure my harvest works? How can I make sure my baby lives? How can I make sure that I get pregnant? And How so much of that make... was also out of your hands because it was the yes. making sure this was happening, you know, like yes. that the gods were happy and the flood was coming. And they actually just had on the news um, about stuff going on in Sudan, but also beyond the civil war, um, the military coup or whatever we want to term it, that there's a really bad climactic issue going on there, which I hadn't heard about, but that the Nile or, well, you know, the river land has flooded, but has never retreated for four years. Really? And so Jeff and I were sitting there watching this and it's just so sad because all these kids are starving. There's big famine. Because and... of the dam? No, no, no. This is fire. They've been getting so much rain <gasps> because of climate change. It just has flooded in Sudan and it's never gone away. So all in the, the land- north or the south? South Sudan. I didn't know that. Yeah. And it's like, I'm like, that would have been Egypt, you know, four bad years of over flood. Like, yeah, you would have been, the king would have been really messing up. (laughs) If the water doesn't recede, you can't plant your crops. Yeah. They they had like cows standing in water and like the cows have anything to eat. Yep. They're all sick. Dysentery, cholera, Mm -hmm. good luck. Yeah. So it was very... And they were saying that they can't get them humanitarian aid because of the military crisis. And it's obviously complicating things, but it was just, we were thinking about like, you know, bad floods in Egypt and how that would have, you know, been very similar. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Moving on to a later topic. Brian wants to know, and I know this is a topic close to your heart, um, about the impact or influence of Mesopotamian and Greek astrology on Egyptian. I would love to learn more about the stars, the Egyptian perspectives on timekeeping, the whole Sirius office thing, calendars, the Zodiac, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
Oh no, I don't know. I'm not I know. There I was going to say this is like yet. this is it's like huge. in our interests, but I don't think we've both looked into it too too much. But but thinking but, about zodiacs yeah. and dendera or something like this, we talked a little bit about it in our Egypt in the news um, bit about the new Esna um, paintings and the zodiac there. To my knowledge, I don't know much about Mesopotamian astrology, but those are very Greek influenced. Our idea of you know, our very Western idea of the Zodiac and Libra and Scorpio and. Yes. Well, let me say that Egypt and Mesopotamia were doing astronomy and astrology simultaneously from at least 4,000 BCE Mm -hmm. to support a state, however you might define that onward. And that those are the earliest recorded astrological or astronomical, uh, doings and that those innovations and learned materials and and movements and and planets and all of that it's not that the greeks didn't know a lot of these things because you can see fixed stars and you can see the planets moving along the ecliptic and you and you can differentiate that some of these heavenly bodies are different from others and the greeks or the ancient Romans would have been able to do this as much as anybody else, just by being out in the natural world, Mm -hmm. which we are not anymore. We -hmm. live in our electrified worlds where it's nighttime here and we're all inside with bright lights, but the science of the astrology slash astronomy was taken up by a Hellenistic world. And that's the context that we see it more clearly expressed in a Greco-Roman religious setting in Egypt. So you've got the Esna ceiling that we were talking about that's been cleared, Dendera, um, Zodiac, and other astronomical ceilings there. These things are very late. It's not that there isn't any astrological or astronomical information from earlier time periods. There are, Mm -hmm. but they're not as well marked. So you have this, this mass of funerary books, underworld books from the new kingdom, Mm -hmm. like book of gates, book of heavenly cow, book of day and night, um, book of caverns. And there is certainly astrological slash astronomical information in there, but we don't always understand it as clearly as we could. And I would argue that it's actually coded so that people wouldn't necessarily Mm -hmm. understand what's going on. This isn't a pay to play, come get your astrologer at the temple of Esna. And that's why the astrological ceiling is right there at the porch where everyone would see it right when they enter, because that was probably something that people really wanted on a daily basis. So that, that it's a different thing. It's a much more restricted science in the, in the new kingdom or in the middle Mm -hmm. kingdom or in the old kingdom, but you still get, information about the movement of the sun, which is part of astrology and Mm -hmm. astronomy. You get information about the movement of the moon. Same thing. Those are your two light sources and, and information about other planets, like a Mars Seth kind of body. And, and then there's other cool stuff like the ceiling in the tomb of Senemut Mm -hmm. at Mm Dirobahri. And it's separated up into the decans, the 36 decans. And the Egyptians invented the decans and that's the houses. It goes into the Greco-Roman system as the 12 houses. So that's really, really cool. And then before that, you have like middle kingdom coffin lids from Mm -hmm. middle Egypt that show 
star charts. And it gives you an idea that the wealthy elite Egyptians were able to monopolize a science of astrological prediction Mm -hmm. and astronomical observance to help them to deal with the world around them. And that they kept this information pretty close to the vest. They wanted it for themselves. It was part of their power structure. I can imagine I would feel very left out if I knew that my land, my my landlord had access to an astrologer and knew what the flood would be and knew about Mm -hmm. this or that, Mm -hmm. or said to know what it would be. And I knew nothing because I couldn't afford the astrologer. And I could just, I could look up at the stars, sure. But without the charting and and the science of it, Mm -hmm. building upon the science of the generations before, I wouldn't have the same ability necessarily in my folk astrology for prediction as that guy would for his more learned scientific astrology for prediction. And I'm separating astrology and astronomy up into mm-hmm. a predictive science for astrology and an, and an observant science for astronomy. Like when's there going to be an eclipse, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Where is it going to be? That's more of an astronomical question yeah. versus what's the eclipse going to mean kind yeah. of astrological mm-hmm. question. Or like the rising so, of Sothis signaling Right, being very cyclical and signaling, then the flood's going to come soon after, and more calendrical kind of counting. Yeah, I love it. It's, it's, we were like, how would people even believe that mm-hmm. heavenly bodies would predict anything? But there it is. Yep. So that rises, and the flood rises with her, and we're shocked that people believe that the movement movements of heavenly bodies can predict things in the world around them these things can happen on a yearly basis or mm-hmm. a seasonal basis yeah, or I mean, the a decadal basis every 28 yeah. days it's very consistent yeah. decanal <laughs> yeah. that's the decanal basis all yeah. of these things yeah and if you don't have any other type of timekeeping i mean those are ever present <laughs> ways of keeping time you could argue that the 24 hour clock invented by the ancient egyptians for cultic reasons was an astrological predictive science mm-hmm that the normal peasant did not need. They didn't need to know that it was 6 a.m. or the Mm -hmm. 12th hour of night or whatever it was. But the priest in the temple, they needed that information so they knew what incantation to say at which moment so that the gods would be on your side and you could pull their goodwill into your space. Mm -hmm. This is what that astrological connection is about. And I'm also always happy to see us pushing back like not just saying, you know, the Greeks made up everything, but that, you know, these astrological, you know, stuff, astronomy, especially like very advanced astronomy, um, especially like the Babylonians, um, non-Greek people were doing these things before and the Greeks are part of the inheritors of it, but aren't the originators. The next time, the next time somebody subtly white supremacy mm-hmm. facing tells you, Oh, the Greeks invented it first. I Mm -hmm. would remind you that Mesopotamians and Egyptians almost certainly invented it first, but didn't write it down because to share that information would demonopolize it, Mm -hmm. would give it away to the masses. It would, it would spread it out to people who could then use it against them. The Mesopotamians and the Egyptians lived in more unequal societies Mm -hmm. and less established like scribal traditions, maybe of just like not writing things down in the same way. I wouldn't say it was less established. I think it was, it was their differentiated agendas Mm -hmm. that you have a scribal tradition to support 
a more pyramidal and unequal system of power in Egypt, certainly. Mesopotamia, less so. There's more competition there. But in ancient Greece and Rome, you have so much competition by so many different players, by so many people trying to sell their wares and sell their influence that everything gets written down. You even have speeches Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, by Made up Roman competitors saying the sex lives of the ancient Romans. Mm-hmm. You, if you put down in writing the sex life of the king, you would get nothing but killed. Oh, yeah. you, you, you can't put these things in writing. So you just have different cultural agendas and interests. Mm-hmm. And it's not that people invented something first, but published it first. Mm-hmm. Publishing, it's, publishing it is, does not smack of strength it smacks of competition and the need to claim something overtly and openly. The ancient Egyptians were like, no, no, we will do so in a very unovert, quiet, less obsequious, or not obsequious, um, less ostentatious mm-hmm. way. Which because we're still they seeing. Don't, no, no, it's just all about being as unobtrusive with this information as you possibly can be because you don't want anyone else to get the information. If you believe this, these are the secrets of the universe, mm-hmm. you're going to give that shit away. No way. No yeah. way. Well, and this is this, I, I feel like this anti-intellectualism that we see spreading in the States that people are under the impression that academics are secreting, uh, secreting away information that we're lying to them about how things are done. And maybe a push to this I think tension we're seeing more so with like open access um, publications versus, you know, still doing the more traditional route when and if we're making things open access, you know, making things more accessible, but we're still under this guise that there's like secret hidden knowledge about. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And the ancient Egyptians created that mythology. Yeah. They would love all the, the secret conspiracy. hidden knowledge. <laughs> they would love they, a good they, conspiracy theory. <laughs> they started it. You build a pyramid to prove the, the superhuman nature of the king, you're not going to give away the blueprints to that. Nope. You you can't. You want everyone to believe that the king is beyond human. It's going to be the same with astrology. And the the if somebody's able to predict something and you, or use it as an edge to to be a to create a better court system or be a better vizier, whatever the perceptions and the reality mm-hmm. of that is, it's an it's a set of of information that will be closely guarded. And yeah, not cool. openly publish. How cool is it to be the person that comes down and says the flood's going to start in a week, and then it starts in a week, and everyone's like, "There are Bible Whoa. stories written about this." There's Joseph, who's at the Egyptian court, who said mm-hmm. he predicts you will have seven years of of great harvest, and you'll have seven years of famine. You need to collect from the seven years of great harvest. You can survive the famine, and that's what gets you through. That that's what helps you survive. That's your edge. And people believe that you use astrology for that. That being put in the Bible could arguably an, be an anti-priestly astrological tool. Mm-hmm. When you're reading your Exodus story about Moses and they talk about the priests and their fake magic and that Moses can outdo them, that is also an anti-priestly mm-hmm. stellar viewing astrological community. That's mm-hmm. the, This is all different power systems of how you divine what the gods are going to do when they're going to do it. Cool.
Yeah. So we'll, we're, we're going to get those books and we'll read up. And I think eventually we'll do a full podcast episode on astrology because I think we're both interested and it would be fun. Yeah. Um, but we need to do some, some uh, reading first. Yeah. And but it is close to educate my heart. Ourselves. I, do, but I do love it. And there's more cool. that I need to read. Yeah. Yeah. I was at a weird bar club over the weekend and they were doing tarot card readings for a shot. Oh, wow. It was very interesting. I was just gifted a tarot card set. So the next time you guys are here, we can break them out and see what yes. what we can do with them. Bye. It's fun. I'm trying yeah. to learn the different. I have, the a, different I have like cards. a traditional set too. Yeah. But we'll yeah. Do it. We should, you know, you got to have your tarot deck. You're an Egyptologist. Better have a goddamn yeah. tarot deck. Try to try to prove that the Egyptians invented it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So on to our last question, but it has many different parts. So I'm going to take it part by part. This is from Far Pointer again, and they said, I'd love to learn more about the dialects slash eras of the Egyptian written language. Were their standard, quote unquote, grammars slash dialects discernible from regional ones? How did they shift over time? And I'll, I'll leave it there for, we can talk about that first, and then I'll come back to the other ones. Do you want to start? So Do you it's need a, to start? I can start too. Yeah, okay. go for it. So... You know, when when we're teaching Egyptian, we teach it as Old Egyptian, Middle Egyptian, Late Egyptian, Demotic, and Coptic. There is also the teaching of the Heratic script, which can be Middle Egyptian Heratic or Late Egyptian Heratic. There is also the existence of Abnormal Heratic, which is like a pre-Demotic. So these are all of the things. Oh, and there's also a pre-dynastic, early dynastic script, which does not really fall into the rubric of the old Egyptian mm-hmm. um, group, but is, is a pre-existing development of the Egyptian script. Now, the question is asking, are there regional differences? The answer is, hells yes, there are regional differences in language. So, and the Egyptians say this in, in some of their texts that the Delta person can't understand the upper Egyptian. in a in a script written scribal tradition, you have you will have less of those regional differences because when you bring somebody in to, and educate them in the way something should be written, the way something should be spelled, you're going to attempt to same out, to homogenize the differences so that you have agreed upon spellings, you have the, the way something should be written. That doesn't mean that in time periods of decentralization, or even non-decentralization, you might see a word written in a weird way with a weird sign in Luxor differently from the way it might be written in the Delta. So you you can see such differences. Mm -hmm. Those are more apparent during times of decentralization when you don't have state-sponsored apprenticeship programs to make sure that everyone's trained in the same way. Um, And so I, I wouldn't call them dialects. I would call them stages of the language though dialects certainly existed at the same time in different parts of Egypt, but the stages of the language would be like an old English versus a middle English versus the the modern English that we speak today. Um, So when you're dealing with 3000 years of language, it gets pretty intense and Egyptian is arguably still alive and well in the Coptic church and I don't think anyone really speaks Coptic, even in a village setting that these things have mostly gone. Um, people can correct me if they would like any Egyptians who might be listening, but um, yeah, 
always differentiate the language from the script. The script is a monopolization of long-term control of information. And it's going to serve a different purpose than me speaking to Jordan or Jordan speaking to me. That's just a verbal communication of language. Yeah, I think we have to remember too, like most people were illiterate. So who is the script even for, right? It's yeah. for the super elites who might've had, I've heard terms like sociolect, right? So like a dialect only for the super elites that they would have been uh, using amongst themselves. And I think it is interesting though, this idea of, you know, standard middle Egyptian being always um, I don't know, it's like Shakespearean English, a very like this like highfalutin way of speaking that is um, you know, still prized much later past. We know they've moved into different forms of the language and different written forms, but people will hearken back to this like good old Middle Egyptian um yeah. to write in. Yeah, I, I think, was just reading in yeah. in class with uh Hong and Brandon. Adam and Charles, and we were reading Edifice of Taharka text, mm -hmm. which is yep. technically Middle Egyptian, but it's not Middle Egyptian like the man and his ba. It's, mm -hmm. a, it's a different sort of Middle Egyptian, but that's what they're trying to produce. That's the attempt rather than a late Egyptian or something else. They're and differentiating themselves from the abnormal heretic that was prevalent at the time. That's interesting. Okay. So continuing on, they is it feasible for a researcher to be able to comfortably read all scripts across the ancient Egyptian history, or does one really have to specialize? And then Me, could... Jordan. Oh, go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. But I'll could... say yes and yes. Yes and yes. Yeah, we can Which talk is about not it. what you want, but go on. Yes. We'll, we'll, let's just talk about it because the next question is about ancient okay. Egypt again. So yes. I mean, our training is that you do it all, right? And we... There are some students at UCLA, and I'll just speak to UCLA, who decide I'm not going to do demotic. You know, I didn't I'm not going to do. You did? I didn't. You That's didn't. the only one so, I didn't do. Yeah, and you're like, I did a, uh, you know, a little bit of demotic, and if somebody put a gun to my head, I would die because I wouldn't be <laughs> yes. able to do the demotic. So some of us are like, not going to do the demotic. Thank you, but I can do old, middle, late. But I am I good at old Egyptian? Fuck no. Yeah, I'm I mean, not. there's a difference of like knowing it or having yeah. been taught it versus like, I'm a specialist. This is why people specialize, like you're a philologist yes. and like you specialize in this form of a language and yeah. they're an expert at that, where the rest yeah. of us who aren't philologists know it, we can read it, translate stuff for our own purposes, but I would never publish, you know, a grammar or a reading of something. I would always seek out one of those experts to collaborate with me on mm -hmm. that reading of something. Um, yeah, but give me the tale of Horace and Seth and I can read it really fast. Yeah. Give me, give me, you know, you, a yeah, more Medina experience. text. Yeah. yeah Daryl Medina, Ram is a 20th dynasty text. Mm -hmm. I can make my way through that, even with some really weird lexicography I'm sure, yeah. of of weird commodities. I know where to look them up. I know what things yeah. could be. And and so that's that's my sweet spot. Mm -hmm. But we need that training because I need to advise students who are doing middle Egyptian texts yeah. and students who are doing old Egyptian texts. Will I know everything? No, but I'll know who to connect them to so that they can then work with the specialist who's able to, to really do that work, which is why you have dissertation committees and not dissertation advisors only, or yeah, at like, least in my opinion, why you should. Like what other field expects you to know 
4,000 years of a language, but LOL. And and just to answer, in addition, there are those people who specialize in the language versus those who specialize in the art history versus those who specialize in the archaeology yes. versus those who specialize in the architecture and there's or history. There's There's a range of topics and you can't be a master of all of them. You just do the best you can with the interests and skill sets that you have. And, and then that's why we cite, that's mm-hmm. why you have footnotes and, and parenthetical citation yeah. and collaborate yeah. and you work with others because you can't possibly know everything. And certain programs are known for being stronger in certain fields of Egyptology, right? So mm-hmm. if you want to do more language heavy work, you go to a certain program over if you want to do more art history, social science, social history type stuff. But um, I will say Egyptology does has does has in the last 20 years, certainly, um, and before that, had this arguably a failing of demanding that a student or a specialist take on one topic mm-hmm. and then treat that topic from the earliest moment that it appears to the last moment they find it, which yeah. demands that they display to their academic audience that they're able to deal with every stage of the language for this particular tiny topic. Like, you know, um, what would a topic like this be like? Tracking the the use of this word blah over, you know. Yeah, exactly. The use of of such a word. You know, you know, tributes or something. Yeah, or something. And and when you first see this appear and when it ends. And Mm -hmm. It means that you know the details of that one particular word or that one particular thing very yeah. well, but does it mean that you're you're able to really settle yourself into the language of all of the time periods? I don't know, um, but that is one way of writing mm-hmm. a dissertation and showing yourself as a master of the field. And I would say that it's a more American, maybe a more British way of going about things to then settle yourself in a time period and then ask a complicated question about mm-hmm. the time period and not expect to be able to apply that question to every time period, but mm-hmm. rather to only a few. Narrow and, yeah. Yeah, more, uh, more narrower so you can be broader mm-hmm. rather than broad and then focusing on the narrow. Yeah. And w- the former would be the more Germanic mm-hmm. style. Maybe French too, but this idea that you cover the whole gamut the whole range from yes. pre-dynastic to Greco-Roman. The history of tribute scenes yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah. Every... and you look at every smiting motif yeah. or whatever yeah. it is, and you you collect them all and you catalog it, and it's a whole thing. Um, it's it is very, a Germanic it, style, it stereotypically. Of, yeah. It reeks very much of this like, of ownership. Yes. Of a yes. very European kind of categorizing taxonomies, museum building of like, I'm going to collect them all together in their mind. Collect them, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you miss one, it's like, oh my God, I missed yeah. one, I missed one. Versus um, like asking bigger, more important questions, but I digress. I mean, we're showing we're showing our <laughs> bias, obviously. Yeah. We're showing our bias very They are important. So let's claim it. But it is a more American thing to be like, why does it matter? Let's ask yeah. the big question. But you can- However, many a German dissertation like that is awesome but i was gonna somebody say would yeah. take the time to go through and collect each little instance there's extraordinary value to that kind of work and it creates a particular kind of mind somebody that, has to that, do it yeah yeah like that virgo mind if i may throw out an astrological Amber. term <laughs> to be able to get into all those details that's that's pretty 
it's pretty cool. I do have a one quick funny tidbit. There's an Iranian study student who wants to take Demotic without having taken any other Egyptian language. And they were asking all of us what we thought. And I was just like, I want you to do it as like a thought experiment to just see like how well you do, like you not having any burden or expectations on like what science should look like and just like going in and start working with and they they talked with Jonathan because it's our we'll have a different person teaching it in the in the next year but Jonathan was like I'd say do it you know what do you have to lose <laughs> and, and it at Johns Hopkins I did know people who did that because they were looking at demotic the Greek perspective the, or something no of Aramaic of Aramaic, the Aramaic yeah. um, mm-hmm. language so using the demotic script so mm-hmm, it makes mm-hmm. perfect sense to be able to read the demotic so. script and be able to apply it then to Aramaic texts. Um, when you I, look at I demotic, the... it doesn't look any more crazy than Aramaic or yeah, Arabic yeah, yeah. or something. So we I just say, have... go for it. Yeah, I, I said the same thing. I was like, just don't take it for a letter grade. <laughs> but, yeah, you know. that's a pass fail for certain. Yeah. But, um, okay, so Flower Pointer continues saying, could a literate Egyptian say during the New Kingdom or late period read scripts from pretty much any structure or artifact that they would encounter or was there su- sufficient difference that they would have to contact you know a specialist to pull it off i don't think we can really answer that question except to say my question that- is like literate person a lot of people might have been semi-literate or degrees of literate literate um but i don't think like most people besides priests and like, I don't know, even if a scribe would just go up to a tumble wall and just be able to read it. Yeah. I mean, I'll say that literacy, gaining literacy is based on old texts. You're meant to read old texts so that you're meant to have that knowledge that goes back into time, that stretches back and gives you that foundation of a past. So you are meant to have a knowledge that is old. And at the same time, there's different skill levels, there's different training levels, there's different levels of priests or scholars. We know scholars who have PhDs and, and don't know that much. And we know scholars who don't have PhDs yet and know all kinds of shit. And, and so there's different brain abilities of these people. And then you can see in some texts that scribes are making mistakes. You can even, you can particularly see this when older texts are mimicked mm-hmm. or copied you or might referenced see some or something mistakes. yeah yeah like somebody's trying to do like a shabako stone if you mm-hmm. believe that mm-hmm. that's 25th mm-hmm. dynasty and they're trying to copy something that's old kingdom that you can actually oh that's old egyptian you can actually argue for certain mistakes or misunderstandings from a late period perspective looking at the text that's a couple thousand years older than their time yeah um almost a couple of thousand. And, um, so, the, so there's, you know, it depends maybe Khan Waset, son of Ramses the second, who maybe from the cradle was trained in the yeah. arts of the Egyptian language. And maybe he was a super scholar. Maybe somebody like that was able to read all of these older texts. And he traveled to, to Saqqara and, mm-hmm. and put inscriptions at the, at the tomb temple complex of, 
of Netraket Djoser. Mm -hmm. Maybe he was one of those scholars that was able to do these things. I mean, in our midst today, we have, we know those scholars. Like I know Robert Desmarais, who mm -hmm. is able to look at a Daryl Medina text or Heratic and just read it. Genius, and where yeah. he gets that ability and he's had it his whole life, I have to assume. Mm -hmm. He's just amazing. And he yep. has people who work with him like Ben Haring mm -hmm. or or Andreas Dorn who are these brilliant minds who are able to like like Haring was able to crack the code of a side script yep. semi-literate people are using as a shorthand notation script mm -hmm. that's insane so cool and, and he was able to to figure that out from all of these funny signs as they call it it's mm -hmm. mind-blowing. So there are those people that we know in the world that have these minds that are more engaged in those kinds of questions. I don't have that mind. Um, so I don't expect myself to be able to do these things, but mm -hmm. I think Jonathan Winterman, mm -hmm. our colleague, has that mind. And we just, you know, hang on to those people yeah. <laughs> if we can't do it. If you have ourselves. a question, you reach out and you're like, hey. Yeah. I will say um, it is important to remember too that most people who were trained to be literate in ancient Egypt were trained first with hieratic. So they might not have been able, or they, you know, there's probably a fair amount of people who weren't trained to read glyphs or yeah. that direct connection isn't made, you know, explicit. And so yeah. when we're taught, it's often the opposite where we learn glyphs first and then we go to hieratic, but that for an Egyptian scribe in training, they would have been taught hieratic, which is a much more kind of hand cursive script. And so the degree yeah. that they could just walk up to a temple wall and turn their hieratic brain into a glyph brain is interesting to, to think about. But, but presumably me, things would have it. like clicked in some sense, like verbs, and you know where mm -hmm. certain grammatical forms are in the sentence, you know. I think they could have done a lot more than we can do. If, oh, yeah. if we yeah. in a in my Zoom language class can sit down and sight read. Yeah late mm -hmm. period middle egyptian temple texts and me you know we have problems with the translation it's not always clear but we can read it we can vocalize yep. vocalize it with limitations um to to each other in a scholarly way and then we can translate that that we can do that without a lot of prep yep. and we're not egyptian and, and we're just you know native. we've learned this for a couple of years yes i think the egyptians yeah. could have really they could have done this. And someone yes. whose native tongue is also in that grammatical form, it would have probably made a lot more sense yeah, than us. Mm -hmm. And I think that a semi-literate person, because literacy is on a gradient, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm, How mm -hmm. many of us have taught that undergrad where you're like, really? Do you know how to critically read? And they don't. Literacy is a gradient and there is mastery and there is a more apprenticeship ability of dealing with a script. And there would have been people who knew a lot of the signs and maybe didn't know as much of the grammar, but knew how to make out the sense of something. And we have to, we have to believe that there were people who could do, who could, who could figure out what the general meaning of a particular text was. But don't ever, ever forget that Egyptian hieroglyphic script was meant to be exclusionary. Mm -hmm. It was meant to monopolize that collected power, cerebral power, generational power, taxation power, whatever it is, and collect it into the hands of a very few and exclude the masses. And so this language was not invented to be easy. It was invented to be wielded. 
That's what it's for, whether as a mm-hmm. weapon of the mind, an ideological weapon or a weapon of the bureaucrat, it was meant to be wielded. Yeah, it was not to make things accessible. <laughs> it's okay. not so you can do you go to the DMV and get your driver's license. Yeah, or yeah. to read a book in your spare time. Okay, last Mm-mm. last part. Um, recently, you touched upon the quote-unquote great translator hype around Champollion in regards to the Rosetta Stone, and you mentioned that there was scholarship in the Islamic academic community earlier that is not well-credited or well-known, and they ask that if any of these earlier scholars were able to actually read or understand hieroglyphs or scripts before, obviously, Champollion's translation. So let me be very clear and upfront that you've asked me a question that I can't even engage with because my Arabic is non-existent. I can't read those texts and it's not a part of my scholarly world. And it's so separate from my scholarly world of ancient Egyptian that in a new language entirely, when you have the Arabs coming in and, and bringing with them a new, a new language system and a new script system, it's too much for me to master that and to try to get a handle on the 3,000 years of ancient Egyptian language. So I don't actually attempt to do so. Having said that, from what I've read of translations of, or cracking the code of ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs, that there is a whole lot more work to be done on Arabic 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th century scholarship mm-hmm. on ancient Egyptian monuments, text, and there's probably a lot more cultural memory in those documents than, than we know of. And that work has only just begun because um, you have such a disconnect between those who specialize in medieval Arabic and those who specialize in Egyptian antiquity and such different skill levels and not enough collaboration between scholars to be able to really get to this answer. But I'm sure there's been things published that I just, that I just haven't seen. It's not what I do. So I'll, I'll let Jordan um, hit the answer from here. Yeah, just from what I know that, as you said, that this early kind of Islamic, medieval Islamic, and then I quickly looked up, there's a book um, by El-Dali on Egyptology, the missing millennium, ancient Egypt in medieval Arabic writing about this. There we go. And it pops up in a lot of alchemical texts of, of mm-hmm. um, early Islam, medieval Islam, and they're working through these symbols they're seeing. And 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 Kircher, who was the first person to write a Coptic dictionary, cites these early writings as they were the first people to realize they're not just pictures, but are phonetic values. So I think, as, as Kara said, that there's a lot more work to be done and collaboration between Egyptologists, traditional Egyptologists, and more medieval Islamic um, scholars. Um, and that I, they didn't translate it in like Champollion's way of translation, but they were working on it and recognized them as, you know, phonetic symbols and not just images. Um, so they definitely pushed forward and they're not often credited, especially in this very European narrative of ownership of the Rosetta Stone and things like this. So I'm, I would yeah. love, I, I don't know much about it either. Very basic. So I remember a couple years ago, 
it being mentioned either in a lecture or something like this. This is all I remember from it. And just quickly looking up that book, but that would be a cool, the book's in English. So it'd be a cool maybe thing we could explore for, for an episode or something. And alchemical, that means probably asked, um, the publisher UCL. Oh, okay. So easy, easy peasy. So, and yeah. the, there's probably some astrological things in there too. So we can do like an alchemical <laughs> astrological thing. So, but um, yeah, we can look and see if there's YouTube lectures and other things out there. So there's obviously yeah. scholarship being being done and that would be really interesting to look at. But into. yeah, this is the the harm of us all being in our disciplines. We, you know, things that are tendentially related, we often lose track of or you know, our, our brains are only so big. <laughs> only handle so much but it's it's very interesting to think about if you grew up in that culture seeing these things around you how you would have connected them and the scholars would have attached other meanings yeah so thank you for all these great questions any final thoughts think so i mean just you know be skeptical of everything you read out there about the ancient world and ask how much we're imposing on antiquity rather than than trying to figure out what actually was going on and people claiming that they have the authentic answer um don't don't always have it so we're all just muddling about using extraordinarily incomplete information trying to figure out what a bunch of people did thousands of years ago and why we do it well we're just trying to figure out what we're doing now and (laughs) that's that's the point of all of it Good. Well, yeah. now everyone can go and watch their Cleopatra Netflix documentary and let us know what they <laughs> Yes. Okay. Well, thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening. This is Afterlives of Ancient Egypt, baby. Woo. Bye. Bye. Thank you to our listeners for your support and please subscribe. It's a big deal with all the platforms, so subscribe. If you enjoyed the show, share it with all your friends, and most importantly, leave us a five-star review. It really helps with all those aforementioned platforms. Send all those ancient world questions and topic suggestions for future episodes to karakuni at gmail.com. We read them all. You can find info on all my books, articles, and upcoming lectures on my website. Just head to karakuniegyptologist.com. Amber puts all that together. Oh my God, thank you, Amber. Join our vibrant and subversive online community at patreon.com slash afterlives and get access to our private Discord server where Jordan and I can connect with our listeners far, far away from all those toxic social media spaces. And do not forget to check out our Substack Ancient Now at ancientnow.substack.com where we share perspectives on all that history and archaeology news every week and continue the conversations that happen after the podcast mic is turned off. You can find me on Facebook at Karakuni Egyptologist and on Twitter and Instagram at Karakuni. Thanks to the team at Patina Productions for this podcast, which I must point out is wholly separate from my academic work at UCLA. See you next time on Afterlives of Ancient Egypt.